Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Now this morning... I'm going to make some bold predictions. Okay, so you ready for some bold predictions this morning? I predict that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee for president. Some of you are clapping. I predict that the Los Angeles Clippers, not the Lakers, but the Los Angeles Clippers will win the NBA championship this June. I predict that in the next five years, the Dow Jones Industrial Average will reach over 30,000 points. I predict that this summer, there will be a hailstorm. (laughs) I predict that the American athletes this summer at the Olympics will have more gold medals than any other country. That's my prediction. I predict that in the next few months, there will be a cure to the coronavirus. I predict that North Korea will stop all testing on nuclear weapons and hand them over to the U.S. with no questions asked. Okay, so I've made seven very bold predictions this morning. And what's the likelihood that I get all seven of them right? 100%. Okay, What if I just got half of them right? What if I got 25% of them right? I'm not a betting man, but the odds keep going down the more you think about it. Now, everybody's into the predicting game. Everybody's into the predicting game. Think about meteorologists. They're the only people I know that are paid to get things wrong a lot of times. Okay, What does the meteorologist do? They predict, they forecast the weather. Okay, you got financial advisors that try to predict the stock market and how you should invest. You've got sportscasters that try to predict who's going to be in the World Series, who's going to be in the Super Bowl, who's going to be in the NBA Finals. And and oftentimes they're wrong, these, these experts. Very few people beat the odds and predict things that will come true 100% of the time. A few years ago, there was a Christian doctor He was a mathematician. His name was Dr. Stoner, Peter Stoner. And he did a study of mathematical probabilities in relationship to the prophecies of Jesus. He was studying his Bible and realized that Jesus fulfilled over 330 prophecies from the Old Testament. And so as a mathematician, he tried to calculate the possibility to see if any one person could fulfill that many prophecies that came true in the future. Now think about probabilities for a moment. If you take a a coin and you flip it, what's the probability it will hit heads? 50%. Some of you are good at math. What's the probability that it will hit heads twice? 25%. What happens if it 
if you flip it and it, it's going to hit heads three times in a row. Something. I'm not good at math, but you guys will figure it out. Okay, so this doctor predicted the probability of Jesus fulfilling prophecies. And instead of limiting it to 330, which was like astronomically too big a number to deal with mathematically, he limited it to just eight. Eight prophecies that Jesus would have fulfilled. Now, eight prophecies, the mathematical probability of that happening is one times 10 to the 17th power. Now, that's one with 17 zeros behind it. Does anybody know what we call that? Terry and it's what? Okay, we'll take that, Trig. It's actually 100, what is it? I have to read it. 100 quadrillion. It's, it's 100 quadrillion. Okay, so what number is 100 quadrillion? Let me give you a visual here. Okay, imagine the state of Texas. Okay, imagine on your map. Some of you are from Texas. You're like, you can imagine it because you go there a lot, Andrea and others. Um, imagine the state of Texas. Filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Okay? Now, what's the probability that somebody would take a, one of those silver dollars, take out a red sharpie and put an X on it, mix up all of those silver dollars that are two feet deep in the state of Texas, blindfold the person, turn them around, and have them go pick randomly a quarter dollar, and on the very first try, they get the one with the X on it. That's the probability of just eight prophecies coming true. Now, he started doing these mathematical problems and equations, and he, he went to 9, he went to 10, he went to 11, and he finally he went to 48 and stopped. 48 prophecies coming true was 1 times 10 to the 157th power. That's 1 followed by 157 zeros. Now, think about the mathematical probability of one man, Jesus, fulfilling not just 48, but over 330 prophecies down to the exact details. It's nothing short of a miracle. It defies the odds, mathematically. Now, 700 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And most scholars estimate that Isaiah had 24 recorded prophecies about Jesus, and all of them came true. Now, what are the odds that that would happen a lot of zeros after a one. Now, we're six weeks away from Easter, and we're going to start a new sermon series today called What are the Odds? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 52, the end of it, and all of Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to look in, in great detail about how Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and how these prophecies came true. Many have called Isaiah the fifth gospel, in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it's so focused on the good news of the hope that we have in salvation. And so Isaiah writes about this servant of the Lord. 
this, this Messiah, this man that would come 700 years later. And so this poem actually shows up and starts at the end of chapter 52, starting in verse 13, and goes all the way into chapter 53. And so we're just going to look at just three verses today, but to kind of get our bearings straight for where we're going over the next six weeks, I want to read the entire poem, the entire servant song here, just to kind of listen to what Isaiah tells us about Jesus. So let's read together Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who's believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Today we're just going to look at the last section of chapter 52. And one thing we need to understand is that this is the fourth of what Isaiah calls the servant songs the fourth of the servant songs. And so Isaiah has introduced this servant of the Lord. Back in chapter 42 was the first, 49 the second, and in chapter 50 the third. And Isaiah introduces us to this servant who's going to be the Messiah. But it's not until we get here that we get these graphic depictions of things like crucifixion, 
of things like the cross, of all these prophecies coming to true in graphic detail. And so for this morning, we are just going to look at three prophecies that came true regarding Jesus. Now here's the first, and this is in verse 13. First, Jesus will successfully accomplish his mission. Jesus will successfully accomplish his mission. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, the ESV translates that wisely. Some of your translations may say he shall prosper. If you look at that word in the original language, it means Jesus will fully be successful in executing his role as Lord and Savior. He will finish the mission, and not fail. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is that Jesus will come and he will accomplish the work. And so what Isaiah does is he, he telegraphs the pass. From the very beginning, Isaiah tells us that Jesus is going to be successful. He gives us the end of the story. And so the rest of the song is more of a flashback of how Jesus accomplished that. But right out of the gate, Isaiah says, he shall act wisely. He'll accomplish his mission. He'll prosper. He shall be high. He shall be lifted up. He shall be exalted. Now we see this language of Jesus accomplishing his mission a lot of times in the Gospel of John. I'm in John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's Jesus' will? To come to earth and accomplish the work God gave him to do, to finish it. John 8, 28-29. Jesus said to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always does what's pleasing to the Father. He's going to accomplish the work that God gave him to do. And so what were some of the last words that Jesus uttered when he was on the cross? John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus will finish what he came to accomplish. His death, his burial, his resurrection. He will not fail in that mission. And what's God going to do to honor Jesus for fulfilling the mission? God's going to exalt Jesus to the highest place. We've been singing about that this morning. He will have the name that's above every name. He will be exalted. Look at what the text says. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Paul uses the same language to talk about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished. In Ephesians 1, 20-23, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus right now is exalted in heaven at the highest place of honor as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Isaiah right here says from the very beginning, 
Jesus will prosper. He will be exalted. It reminds me of what Paul says also in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, what did Jesus do? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what happens next? Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So right from the start, Isaiah tells us Jesus will be victorious. Jesus will be successful. Jesus will not fail in his mission. Jesus will be exalted to the highest place. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and Revelation tells us that. In Revelation eleven fifteen, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we need to have this perspective. It's a very important perspective that we need to have today, that Jesus is absolutely sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Because here's the problem that we have in our modern-day evangelical church. There's a weakness that we have that we need to address. There's, there's a really a strong, how's it really a strong weakness? There's, there's a, a big weakness in our churches today, and that is this. We've lost the awe and wonder of the exalted Christ being absolute Lord of all and that everybody needs to bow their knees to King Jesus and one day every tongue will confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Because we don't like the idea of a king because we're Americans, right? We got rid of a king a long time ago. That's what the American Revolution was fought over. You see, we live in an America, democratic, but do whatever you want. Jesus loves you the way you are. Nobody has the right to tell me how to live. Nobody is a sovereign over me. I'm my own person. How dare you come along, Jesus, and tell me how to live? You see, we want to be independent. We want to run our lives. We want to be in charge. And Jesus comes along and says, absolutely not. There is no higher authority than me in your life. I am king, I am Lord, and you must bow your knee to me. You see, that idea is not only foreign to many of our ears, it's just downright offensive. We don't like to be told that we're not the ones that are on the throne, but that Jesus is. So Isaiah begins here. Begins this entire hymn, this entire song, this entire poem with victory. Je Jesus is going to win. Jesus is, is going to accomplish the work. Jesus is going to be exalted to the highest place. Now, here's the paradox. Here's the question. Here's the mystery. How is Jesus going to accomplish this? What's going to have to happen before Jesus gets exalted to the highest place? Because in our human way of thinking, we would think that the way you get exalted to the highest place is through conquest, through power, 
through military might. So how is Jesus going to do this? Is he going to win by might? Is he going to win by military power? Is he going to come on a white horse wielding a sword? Yes, at the end of the age. But in his first coming, that's not the way Jesus is going to come. In his first coming, there's going to be major suffering before exaltation. So Isaiah says he's going to be exalted to the highest place. But the way this exaltation is going to come is through the suffering of the cross. He's going to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cruel and bloody cross. So the first prophecy, and Isaiah gives us the answer right from the very beginning. Jesus is going to win. He's going to be victorious. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to be exalted. But here's the second prophecy. Jesus will suffer physical torture as the Messiah. Look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus will be so physically beaten that people will look at him and say, is that person even human? Because they've gotten beaten so badly. His face will be disfigured from being beaten. Physical torture. Now, Isaiah is going to address the spiritual anguish that Jesus suffered, but at first here, he's going to give us the, the physical torture, just of what Jesus experienced. So, the book of Matthew tells us specifically how this prophecy came true. What happened to Jesus physically that caused his face to be marred beyond human recognition? In Matthew 27, 36-31, Then he, that's Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Okay, so they put this crown of thorns on Jesus' head. And we're not talking like little goat heads here. We're talking like spikes going into his head. And they beat him. Sometimes the, the gospel says they pulled out his beard. But they scourged Jesus. They flogged him. This is called the, the flagellum. It was a cruel and merciless preparation for crucifixion. Basically, prisoners were stripped and they were bound to a post. And they took this whip with crushed bone, crushed metal, and sometimes crushed glass. And they would flog the person to basically shorten the time that they'd have to experience crucifixion. Some people even got killed from flogging before they even got crucified. And it would also just rip apart the flesh. So Jesus' flesh is being ripped apart, a crown of thorns upon his head. He's beaten, he's scourged. And so he experienced this 
physical torture. Now, there's an interesting issue related to the word marred. In verse 14, as many as were astonished to you, his appearance was so marred. Marred. That's their traditional way to, to translate that word, marred, disfigured. But there's also another way you can translate that Hebrew word, which is very interesting. It could be translated anointed. You could translate that, and it would be an accurate translation. His face was anointed beyond that of a man. He was anointed. Now, I don't think we can be dogmatic, but I think it's worth at least mentioning that it could be anointed because Kings and prophets and priests were anointed in the Old Testament. They, oil was poured over their heads. They were anointed so that they could carry out their ministry, especially priests. Only an anointed priest could make atonement for the people by sprinkling the blood. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment because actually verse 15 says he'll sprinkle many nations. Leviticus 16.32. The priest who's anointed... And consecrated as priest in his father's house shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. I think we're safe to say that you can take the word both ways. That word marred. Probably, traditionally, it means his face was disfigured. But if you think about it also meaning he was anointed, the word Messiah means anointed one. The word Christ means the anointed one. So I think what Isaiah here is, he's maybe using a cryptic word here to kind of show us that this one who's going to be beaten beyond all disfigurement is actually the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that will die in our place. Now we get to the third prophecy. So the first is Jesus will succeed. He will be victorious. He will be exalted. Secondly, He's going to experience physical torture as the Messiah. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be scourged. He's going to have the crown of thorns on his head. He's, people are going to look at him and say, is that person even human? But then the third, and this is where it gets a little bit difficult, so I'm going to spend some time on this. Third, Jesus' message of forgiveness will be preached all over the world. So we know Jesus is going to be successful. We know he's going to be exalted. We know he's going to be disfigured and tortured. But what's he going to actually accomplish in that for us? Notice the interesting language that's used there. Verse 15, he shall sprinkle many nations. Now, you may have a footnote down there and say startle. Some translations say startle. I don't actually take that definition. I think it's, it's probably not the best translation. Sprinkle is the best translation. Now, what in the world does it mean to sprinkle many nations? What, what do you do when you sprinkle something? Sprinkling in the Old Testament was often equated with cleansing, purifying. The sprinkling of blood, the sprinkling of water. Back in Leviticus chapter 14, um, a priest would sprinkle the blood of a bird on a man who had leprosy to show that he was cleansed. And so sprinkling represented cleansing. But the, the biggest image from the Old Testament where a priest would sprinkle blood 
was on the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle. Now, we spent months, we just finished up Exodus last week, and we looked at the tabernacle. Remember, there's one day a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the people. So when you, as an Old Testament person, hears the word sprinkle, you're thinking blood sacrifice, you're thinking atonement, you're thinking forgiveness of sins. This is what we see in Leviticus 16, 19 through 22. This is the high priest. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it. That's the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. With his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And when he's made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. What? Isaiah is saying here is that Jesus in that physical torture is going to sprinkle with his blood, purify with his blood, cleanse with his blood many nations. Now the writers in the New Testament pick up on that language of sprinkling with the blood to talk about Jesus, especially Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying, listen, if that sprinkling of blood and the sprinkling of ashes and sprinkling, all that sprinkling from the Old Testament purified those Old Testament people for a, for a season, how much more will Jesus' blood that was shed once and for all get to the heart of the issue and cleanse us from the inside out through the sprinkling of the blood? Peter starts his, his letter this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says, We've been called according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The sprinkling of the blood means that Jesus will pour out his life unto death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And the New Testament writers pick up on the sprinkling language and they equate it with what Jesus did. But notice what it says there. He shall sprinkle many nations. This is not just going to be a salvation for the Israelites, for the Jews. It's going to be for the nations. It's going to be for you and me. It's going to be to the ends of the earth. It's going to be for the Gentiles. Mark 10, 45. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The sprinkling of his blood, his life as a ransom for many nations. Now, we see this in vision in Revelation where the slaughtered lamb died, Jesus, for many nations. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, the sprinkling of your blood, you ransom people for God, where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, this is a paradox. This is a mystery. Because Isaiah says from the very beginning, Jesus will be exalted. Jesus will be victorious. But how will it happen? 
It'll happen through torture. It'll happen through crucifixion. It'll happen through the sprinkling of his blood for sinners. And how are people going to respond to this? When, when, when somebody hears this for the very first time, notice what it says there. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I don't even know how to respond to this. It's too radical. You see, we think exaltation comes through conquest. We think exaltation comes through pushing yourself ahead. We think exaltation comes where Jesus says, I'm in town. Here's the way we're going to do it. It's my way or the highway. Everybody get out of my way. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to serve. And I'm going to serve to the lowest point of actually dying on the cross. And then I will be exalted. So in God's economy, victory always comes through suffering. Exaltation always comes through hard times. The cross comes before the resurrection. Now, those of you that have been coming to our Wednesday night class on Romans, just this past week, Paul quoted from this passage of Scripture as a missionary verse. Paul quotes this to show that when the message of the gospel goes out, there will be people who've never heard the message of Jesus, and they need to hear that. Notice what he says there at the end. For that which has not been told them, they will see. That which they've not heard, they will understand. Okay, There are people living in the world right now that have never heard the message of Jesus and need to hear that message. And Paul says it this way in, in Romans 10, 13-17. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If you're here today and you need to be saved, call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. That's a promise. But notice what Paul says next. Okay. How's that going to happen? How then will they call upon him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us? Okay, that's chapter 53, verse 1. We'll get to that next week. Um, but verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing to the word of Christ. How will people ever be able to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation unless they've ever heard of him? If they've never heard of Jesus, somebody has to go tell them. Who has to tell them? You and I who know Jesus have got to go tell people about this king who will be victorious, who was tortured, who sprinkled them with his blood, who died and rose again. Romans 15, 21 is a direct quotation of this passage. But as it is written, okay, where is it written, Paul? It's written in Isaiah 52, verse 15. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. As we approach Easter... It's a time that we need to start focusing on telling people about Jesus. At this time of year, there are people that are more open to the gospel than at any other time. Your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, invite them to church, talk to them about Jesus. This is a missionary passage saying that this message will go to people that have never heard. So there are people that have never heard a clear message of Jesus all around you. They may have 
know who Jesus is. They may have read their Bible, but they never had somebody tell them, listen, here's the full story of what Jesus has done. And so as we approach Easter, let's start getting in the mindset of, of talking to people, talking to our neighbors, talking to our friends, talking to our coworkers. I'm encouraging people to come to church with you, getting in that, that mindset of let's tell people about Jesus this Easter. Now, what's the only appropriate response to Jesus dying on the cross and rising again and experiencing this physical torture? We shut our mouths. The kings will shut their mouths. Because here's the point. When you look at what Jesus did for you, you can't really open your mouth and say, well, well Jesus, here, here's my resume. Here, here's all the good things I've done. Jesus, here, here's how I've been so good. Jesus, here's what I've done. No, what you do is you shut your mouth and you say, wow, look at what he's done for me. I can't plead my case. I can't hand in my resume. I can't say, God, look at how good I am. And the more I talk, the more guilty I become. I keep incriminating myself. Before Jesus, we just need to shut up. And receive what he alone has given us. You see, it's a paradox. It shocks the world to see this. Kings shut their mouths. They, they don't know how to take it. Because here's the shock. The one who everybody looked at as dirty, as marred, as unclean, as bloodied, would be the one that would actually cleanse those that need the cleansing. The one who was tortured became the one who was the Savior. And people don't understand that. The world doesn't understand this. Many of you have probably seen the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. It does a good job of showing the physical sufferings of Jesus. What it can't show you is the spiritual sufferings of Jesus. And I know many people that have seen The Passion of the Christ and they look at all the things that Jesus experienced suffering-wise, and they come away moved. They come away a little bit emotionally charged. I have somebody very dear to me that we talked about that movie afterwards, and this person told me, I said, what did you think of that movie? And he said, well, Jesus died for a cause he really believed in. And for him, it was like Saving Private Ryan or William Wallace of Braveheart. It was somebody that died for a cause Somebody was martyred for a cause they believed in, and that person was moved to pity. Let me just remind you, Jesus is not to be pitied. He's to be worshipped. And Isaiah tells us he will sovereignly succeed in dying on the cross, rising again, and he will be exalted to the highest place. The one who went to the Depths of suffering will be exalted to the heights of glory. He will sprinkle many nations with his precious blood. He will completely forgive all of our sins by dying on the cross. So in the weeks leading up to Easter, here's the question. Okay, how, how will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to this news? How, how will you get your heart ready? How will you gaze your eyes upon Jesus? How, how will you get yourself in a posture to be ready for Easter? Now, we can celebrate and we can worship Jesus' resurrection every day. I'm not downplaying that, but there's something special about this time of the year. You know, at Christmas time, we have Advent to kind of get ready for Christmas. 
We're never told to celebrate Christmas in the Bible. It's there. But Easter, the resurrection, is the greatest event that we could celebrate as Christians. How are you getting ready for Christians, for, for Easter? What are the odds that Jesus would not only fulfill three prophecies here, just three, but over 330? Now, it's far greater than finding a silver dollar two feet deep in the state of Texas. Now, if you were to go find that silver dollar with the X on it, that would be kind of cool. I found the silver dollar. Let me ask you a question. Does that do anything for your eternal destiny? No, I got, I'm a dollar richer. Okay, I got a silver dollar. I found it. Cool. It's a great mathematical problem. It doesn't really affect your eternal destiny. But worshiping Jesus and submitting to Jesus and bowing to Jesus and following Jesus and trusting in Jesus as Lord of Lords and as King of Kings and as the Sovereign, that has ultimate implications for your eternal destiny. You need to nail it down today where you're going to spend eternity. Will you spend eternity with this Jesus in heaven? There are eternal consequences. Basically, I'd say this. Eternity hangs in the balance in how you respond to Jesus. So as we go on this journey over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to see all these wonderful prophecies fulfilled. We've just looked at three today. How will you prepare your heart for Easter? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm so thankful that you gave us this prophecy in Isaiah. It's exciting. And I'm so glad that Isaiah starts with victory first and says, here's the end of the, here's the, end of the movie. Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. And then you show us kind of in flashback how that happens through a death, a bloody death on a cross and eventually through a resurrection from the grave. Lord, if there's anybody in this room this morning that does not have that personal relationship with Christ, where they know in their heart of hearts their sins have not been forgiven, they've not trusted you for salvation, today would be the day that they shut their mouth. They stop trying to be good, stop trying to plead their case, stop trying to make excuses, and they, they just shut their mouth before you and just receive the gift, the free gift of salvation that came, Jesus, when you died on the cross. We're thankful that this message of salvation is going to the nations. Lord, it's not just for the Israelites, but it's for all the nations. And Lord, we want to be a part of that this Easter. We want to go to our friends and go to our neighbors and go to our coworkers and go to our family and go to those around us that don't know and tell them the good news of a victorious king named Jesus who died on the cross and rose again and can bring us hope. So Lord, as we approach Easter just six weeks away, and as we go on this journey together as a church, would you prepare our hearts? Would you prepare our minds? Would you get us in a frame of mind every day to have our eyes fixed on Jesus? We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we thank you for enduring what you endured on the cross for us, that we might be forgiven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And for his glory, because he is exalted to the highest place. Amen.